Welcome to Off-Trail Learning. This is Blake Bowles. If you get interested in alternative education in your 20s, how do you get into it? There's no clear path. There's very few college majors that will direct you down any pipeline. There's no professional development seminar. There's hardly any jobs out there. So what do you do? That's the subject of today's interview with Cassidy, a former school teacher who's now making her way through the world of alternative education in her 20s. Without further ado, here she is. My guest today is Cassidy Younghands. Cassidy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Blake. Who are you, Cassidy? What are you doing here? Um, wow, that's like a really intense question. Um, I <laughs> For the starting question, um, I am a former public school teacher turned self-directed education enthusiast and advocate. Um, I currently am a staff intern at the Houston Sudbury School in Houston, Texas. So currently exploring alternative education methods but just always wanted to be a teacher, loved working with kids since I was young, uh, find a lot of identity and a lot of purpose through being around young people and um, helping them explore the world in any way that they want to. So, And how yeah. old are you, Cassidy? I'm 27, and uh, yeah. Are you calculating a fraction now? Yeah, I was going to say, I was like 27 and a half. Yeah, I don't. I <laughs> we'll round off. Uh, you did you did great with my very aggressive opening question. Congrats. Uh, what do you want to do in this field? Why are you in alternative education? What's what's the long game here? So ever since I was a little kid, I had like a super ambitious dream, um, and it's become more and more um, of a passion of mine, which is eventually opening some kind of alternative school um, where kids have more options and more choice and more autonomy. Um, than in some of the other conventional models. So long-term, possibly opening some kind of alternative nonprofit school. I know that's a super ambitious dream, but I'm thinking, you know, the long game, not necessarily like tomorrow, because that would be a little crazy. But over time, that's something that I really hope to be, you know, gaining the skills to do. Mm -hmm. Great. So we're going to be talking about what it's like to be someone uh, in your 20s who is trying to build a career in the field of alternative education. And so hopefully other people who find themselves in a similar boat can take away some lessons from this podcast. You have a a unique story, a unique path, of course, coming from the public school arena. And where did it start? Were you a public school student your whole life growing up in Texas? So I started in a Montessori school when I was young. That was kind of the first school experience I had. Um, And then at about fourth, fifth grade, I transitioned into public school and definitely felt a lot of shock there with the different um, way that kids treated each other and also the way that adults related to young people. Um, But went to public school through 12th grade, graduated, went to a four-year public university, planning on being a public school teacher, kind of did follow a pretty standard path as far as the public school section goes, but... um, after becoming a teacher and spending a lot of time with kids, it didn't take me too long to start stumbling across um, some issues in the system. And so that was definitely uh, a main factor that kind of shifted my path from something that I felt was very traditional and conventional to um, really looking for something different. And let's back up a little bit to when you were still in college. Did you imagine that you would become a career public school teacher? And if so, what grades, what subjects? Yeah. So in college, I definitely thought, you know, okay, I'm going to be an English teacher. I'm going to teach middle school. I actually um, had a specific, you know, desire for seventh grade. I really vibe with, felt like I vibed at that age. Um, And so I was really looking for, um, yeah, a lifelong career in public school education. That was something that I completely was 100% invested in. Um, And so I did graduate in four years. I was ready to get a classroom. I was student teaching and I was like, oh my gosh, I can't wait to have my own kids um, so that I could uh, make this big lasting impact as most people, you know, going into education want to do um, and affect kids because oftentimes they had one or two teachers that did the same. And so that was my my vision. um, But that's not quite how it ended up after a couple of years actually in the system day to day after day. 
Yeah, tell me about your your day to day experience, starting with student teaching and then moving into getting your first job. So, student teaching was uh, probably the most um, helpful part of college for education. I didn't really feel like I got a ton out of the other um, classes that were required, and I didn't feel like those classes quite prepared me for uh, the things I was going to be faced with in the system and with kids. Um, so. Student teaching was really helpful because I was actually in a classroom with another teacher, um, and that was really interesting to watch because you could kind of see when you're watching that teacher, okay, I want to do that thing. Oh, that didn't seem to rub the kids the right way. I'm not going to do that when I have a classroom. You know, kind of just thinking about, okay, what things can I take away so that when I have my own room, you know what I mean, I'll be able to do mm-hmm. the best that I can. Then going into public school, I got a job. Um, it was the first job I applied for, and I got it. And it was a great opportunity because I was at a fine arts public school. It's a public school, but it's uh, really focused on fine arts. And when I was starting there, um, I did have some support, probably more than a lot of first-year public school teachers do have. Um, And so I was able to kind of get on my feet pretty quickly and start teaching. Um, But once you're kind of not in survival mode, because first-year teaching can can feel like you're in survival mode. You're just living day to day. You're trying to make the best lessons you can. You're trying to grade everything. You're trying to, you know, do your to-do list the best you can. And it is a very um, intense experience, especially that first year. But after getting that kind of under my belt and starting into my second year and my third year uh, with seventh grade English as the subject that I was teaching, um, I really started to notice the struggles that the kids were having because I was no longer in that like survival mode myself, but I was seeing that they kind of were constantly in a state of stress that felt, you know what I mean? Like every yeah. moment, you know, was very survival mode. Yeah. You, you got good enough at your job that you had some bandwidth to see that the kids were, were actually really stressed. You could, could right. actually notice what's going on for them. Right. So what did you see? Uh, what, what are, you know, I talk a lot about public school, but it's been a long time since I've been in public school uh, in public school, and you were there very recently. So what's it like in a, I assume, kind of middle class, Texas, seventh grade classroom nowadays? Yeah, so it's hard because the anxiety and stress, like if you're the kind of person that really feels those things, which I mean, I think a lot of people do, you, you feel that when you are in a public school and you're working there or you're going there at like a high level pretty consistently um, throughout the day. So kind of, you have that feeling of like, oh, if something goes wrong, everybody's kind of already on edge, I feel like. Especially, you know, I think the educators are. um, I think oftentimes administrators are. There's just so many things to do. There's a lot of pressure from, you know, top down and the kids feel it the most. So the amount of stress and anxiety that they are living in every moment um, is more than, I think is just increasing all the time is more than I felt. And I definitely felt that in a public school environment too. Um, but they were coming to me with just, I mean, the kids that are, were the thriving kids in the academic environment, you know, were sometimes the ones that were suffering the most, um, struggling with internal pressure that came from um, this external idea that their value was measured by grades. Um, a lot of kids also had issues with understanding like social um, interactions and oftentimes like needed to have more time socializing, socializing. Um, but because they didn't get to develop those skills, uh, really struggled with peer groups and clicks and things like that. But I think also, um, the amount of time that they don't have to do anything for themselves. Uh, I think that they're very overscheduled. And so these kids would come to my classroom and fall asleep. And I'd be like, well, what were you doing last night? And they'd be like, you know, well, I was, I had this practice and then this rehearsal. And then, you know, I had this with my mom and then, you know what I mean? And I didn't get home till 11 and then I did my homework. And that just, to me, those kinds of things, I was just like, oh my gosh, this is way more than I understood before. Um, and I didn't have as many issues in public school as a student, but a lot of students do, a lot of students do, um, and have issues with teachers and issues with being misunderstood or labeled like a, you know, the bad kid. That was a really still, you think it's not a common occurrence to hear things like that, but you do um, where kids are kind of labeled from a young age and treated accordingly. Mm. How was your experience as a teacher working with the administration and being part of the team of other teachers? 
Was that a positive or neutral or, or other experience? There were, there were definitely good experiences there. I had a, a mentor teacher my first year that really helped me grow um, with as far as writing curriculum and challenging the kids. Um, Administration-wise, it was kind of talking out of both sides um, of the mouth in a sense. Like, oh, we want you guys to be thinking outside of the box, but don't take the kids outside. Oh, we want you to be, you know what I mean, doing, um, doing things that the kids enjoy, but if they're looking like they're having too much fun, are they really learning? Um, and mm. so kind of that constant contradictions of, mm-hmm. and then feeling like, okay, so when it comes to what I know is best for kids, it's being interpreted as play. And until I had scores, once I had scores that backed up that they were learning, um, and by scores, I mean the, sto- the scores from the standardized test. So the star test, once those came back after my first, I think two years, uh, that's when the administration really started ba- kind of backing off and realized that, you know, let her do her thing. But um, I still was within this very constrained system um, that I feel like even when I gave freedom that I could in my classroom, um, it didn't stick and it it caused more conflict than it solved. Mm. How old were you at this point after your second year of teaching? Just to get a, a reference like point. 23, yeah. Wow, so you started teaching fairly early. Yeah, I did the four years. I was ready. I was like, okay, I'm going to, even in high school, I knew I wanted to be a teacher. You know, when I was three years old, I was lining up Barbies and was like, listen, you're going to learn. So, <laughs> Listen, Barbie, your standardized <laughs> test scores have I been. Chalkboard. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, <laughs> I did. I had all of the things. So, <laughs> um, Okay. So, wow, you're 23. You'd already done a couple of years of teaching. And, uh, and it sounds like you were a bit annoyed by the the contradictions and the, the restrictions placed on you, but that it was still manageable and that there's, yeah, some drama and BS going on in the classroom, but that was manageable also. I, I just imagine there's a lot of people who have found themselves in the situation that you were in, thinking like, ah, this is definitely not ideal. This is not how I envisioned myself being a classroom teacher, but it's not the worst thing either. Was that your attitude? I think it was. I think that I was like, okay, I'm doing the best with what I have in the situation that I'm in for the kids that are in my room. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that view shifted, uh, I think, over time as well. Like, uh, I mean, there's a couple things that I, I look at as things that uh, kind of expose me to thinking about education differently. Definitely, obviously, kind of like a lot of people, Ken Robinson's talks about killing creativity in schools. Um, I saw a great a YouTube video by a 13-year-old. Uh, he did a YouTube uh, TED Talk, and it was about hack schooling, so how to like hack your education so that it works for you. Um, and then kind of stumbled upon, okay, looking at, looking kind of for alternatives to traditional school. Um, and that's when I came across like John Taylor Gatto and really kind of got a slap in the face of like, oh, you think you're, you know, saving everybody. And it's like, yeah, but you're like, like you and I have talked about Blake before, it's like a forced audience. So you think you're doing, you're like bestowing all of this knowledge to these kids, but oftentimes those kids, if they could choose, wouldn't be sitting in that classroom with you. So really switches your thought process when you just, you feel like you're, you know, at least, like I said, I was trying to help in the system that I was in. And then I felt like because of the system itself, it was still somewhat more damaging in the end, uh, by participating in that system and um, with the constraints that the system has, like not allowing kids to go to the bathroom without permission. Mm-hmm. To me, that's a huge you know, human rights violation. But if I just let them go, which I tried to start doing my last year, I got a ton of backlash from fellow teachers and uh, administration, so. So you're watching these videos, you're reading these books, and uh, even something as simple as letting kids go to the bathroom when they need to is earns you all sorts of grief. Um, at, where was the tipping point? Where did you start to seriously think about leaving public education and jumping ship into this wild world of alternatives? That's hard because I think that there was there were a few uh, points of inflection. I think one of them was. I started by looking at, you know, looking up alternative to traditional education and came across the Arrow website uh, that Jerry Mintz uh, created. And so there's a list of education alternatives there. And one of the schools that I saw was in Grapevine, Texas, and it was Macario's Community School. 
And uh, I started looking at these alternatives because of my Montessori background. And I know there's other things that people are doing with education. So I was like, okay, what are they? Where are ones close to me? Um, I wasn't quite ready to be looking for a job somewhere else, but I wanted to see like, what are other people doing with kids? Because there has to be something um, better. So uh, one day I had Friday off from traditional school and um, I had just run an errand and I was like, oh my gosh, I'm really feeling this urge to go visit Macarios. And I hadn't reached out to them at all. I hadn't, I had just thought about it in my mind. And so I called and the first thing that happened was a student answered the phone. And Whoa. very, very eloquently, <laughs> like wonderfully, like not, not like, yo, what's up? You know, like very, you know, uh, professionally and, and, uh, and I didn't even know they were a student when they answered, like I got to the school and then I found out, oh, you're Oliver. Oh, you, you answered the phone. Okay. Like you're 14. Um, that's awesome. And that was the same student that ended up giving me a tour of the school. Um, and so then I really was, it was blowing my mind every second, um, when they were talking about how students, uh, each do a chore at the school, how students self-direct their own time um, and what they do based on their interests. It was a totally different environment. And to say specifically, the biggest thing that I felt was this huge relief of that anxiety and stress that kind of loom over the public school system. Mm -hmm. And once I felt that, that was something that I was like, I have to stay in touch with this school. I have to find a way to keep hold. And they weren't hiring. They weren't looking for anybody um, they, they have, now they have 50 students. They're doing really well. Um, and it was, I think their second year when I was visiting. Um, so they were still very young before and they still are a young school, but they're doing so well. Um, and so I've stayed in touch with them, but one of the things that the founder helped me do, uh, Donella, she got me in touch with, um, people that she was working with that were trying to create an annual conference about self-directed education. And so she was like, Hey, talk to you know, this guy that I know that is, you know, I'm helping to coordinate this conference and see what you can do to get involved. And I was like, oh my gosh, that's wonderful. So that kind of helped me start exploring into the world. And then um, eventually working with uh, Aaron, who is the one in charge at the time to bring you to- I was going to uh, say, Dallas. this is how we met. This is where you come into the story. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and then I got the cool job of driving you around. Um, so <laughs> my, my Uber up. driver. Yes. Yes. And you were my car hostage. So <laughs> it was great because, um, I really got to kind of like dive right in meeting people like you, um, and other people involved in, uh, local communities and, um, networking, you know, with other people that are thinking more like I was thinking. So I didn't feel so crazy once I kind of met more people that were like, yeah, I see what you're saying. I believe in self-directed education. I think that this would be a better way for kids to learn. Um, and help so. jog my memory, Cassidy, when you helped run that conference, which is called Self-Directed Path, um, were you still a public school teacher, but were you also spending a, a you know formal time at Marcario's school? Uh, that's a great question. Yeah, I was still public school teaching. So I spent uh, a lot of time meeting up with Aaron and working on like, you know, Google Forms and Google Docs to kind of communicate with each other about the progress of the conference. So it was the first conference and it was first called Alt-Path. We kind of decided to shift that um, just because of the various connotations that can come. Um, and we wanted it to be more specific because it's not just Alt, it's self-directed. Um, and so with the conference, um, even though I was still public school teaching, I was meeting up with um, Aaron at least, you know, once or twice, uh, possibly a week to work on planning for this. Um, so you're doing full-time school teaching and then also kind of subversively, uh, you know, putting together this one-day conference that's all about self-directed learning and alternative paths to success did you feel some cognitive dissonance during this time? Was it weird shifting back and forth between these worlds? Oh, definitely. I think it got weirder as I bought more and more into the the models. As I learned more and talked to more people and became more confident in my views. When I was in public education and at the same time working on this conference, I kind of tell people I felt like a kid of divorced parents. Like I had a foot in one thing and a foot in another thing. And I was so passionate about both of them and wanted to do my best that I could 
in both sides, right? To be challenging myself to learn more about self-directed education and growing the you know, uh, conference and getting sponsors and getting speakers and organizing how it's gonna go, um, selling tickets. And then at the same time, was still trying to create valuable, great curriculum for the students that I had in my classroom. And so I think that the big, you know, one of the big things, and I'm going to, you know, give you huge props for this was, you know, you and I met for coffee right before the conference that day. I don't know if you remember, I picked you up and we went and had coffee and we talked about, you know, where I'm at and why I, you know, was interested in the conference and what I'm doing in public education. And there was a point where I told you, I was like, I just, I think I'm going to get, I'm going to get burnt out. I don't believe this is the best for kids. I don't know what to do. Um, but I'm not happy where I'm at enough. You know, I was happy when I was spending time one-on-one -on -one with, or, you know, with small groups of kids being a person and mm -hmm. talking to them person to person and having great relationships. And also I enjoyed, you know, talking to them intellectually about different, you know, academic and non-academic things. But I was not happy with the system itself. And I told you that, and you're like, so what are you doing? You know, and, and I'm like, <laughs> like as well, a public school teacher. Yeah. Well, you know, you were, yeah, you were kind of like, why are you still in that system if you're really not happy and you know, and you know, it's not going to get better, you know? And I, and I told you that I was like, I know it's not going to get better. There's not a light at the end of the tunnel. This is what it is. Um, and so then I was, then I was like, oh, well, I could do this. Maybe I could try to work at this alternative, or maybe I could try to learn more about, you know, or apprentice here, or maybe do this. And I was just like, you and I were just talking of bouncing things around. And I was like, yeah, but I don't have any, like, I don't have any um, knowledge in self-directed education that I feel like I could bring. Like, nobody's going to want to hire me. Uh, I think I told you at the time, like, what, how am I going to make a living? How am I going to do that? Um, but I think the more important question that you asked me was the whole, like, what are you doing in public school if you're not happy? Because that shifted my thinking of like, I can leave because you were, because then I was like, well, I could do this, I could do this. And you're like, yeah, you could. And I'm like, yeah, but I really couldn't because I don't have the skills. And you're like, yeah, you just do, you just do it. You know, and you get the skills by doing it. You basically told me, Cassidy, self-direct this, you know, figure uh, out, yes, yes. you know, you're teaching, you're already teaching yourself through reading and different things, but go put yourself out there, get a mentor, you know, uh, find people that are doing what you want to be doing and go intern with them. And, and so then I kind of talked to you and we kind of, I think I told you that we were, I started plotting to save money so that I could do that. So I went back to school for one more year and that was my fifth year after the conference with you. I had one more year in teaching and that year I told myself, you know, I'm saving money. I'm, you know what I mean? Being really smart about where I'm putting my money. Um, and then I ended up asking my mom in the spring if I could move home for that semester so I could save money so that I could do something like I'm doing now. This is where I wanted to take this. So thank you for leading the conversation in the appropriate direction, Cassidy, which is, yeah, if you are coming from a traditional, I want to be a school teacher background, and then you discover this world of alternative education, you know, it's not so clear or easy how to transition into it. Because as you've noticed, there's not a lot of jobs hanging around out there. Often you don't feel like you're necessarily prepared for these jobs coming from a traditional classroom background, which is something we can talk about more. And there's just no career path, right? There's no major that you can take in school that has a pipeline going into the alternative education industry. Everyone does have to sort of invent their own path. Um, so let's talk a little bit more about where your path has taken you. You are now an intern at the Houston Sudbury School. And uh, so how are you making this work? Let's just say financially. So by moving home, I saved a bunch of money on rent and that was a huge factor. Um, so, I mean, in numbers, more than a thousand dollars a month, I was saving by living with my family who took me back, which was nice of them, um, for a little while. And so that was a sacrifice. Um, also sacrificing a lot of like going out and spending money on things like, uh, Starbucks or, you know, just different things that I didn't actually need, um, so that I could afford to do this. And what has happened is Houston Sudbury School, it was really serendipitous, I feel like, because I started looking for internship opportunities for this fall um, when I was still in public education. And um, I had already visited Houston Sudbury School to see Peter Gray speak. And so I kind of already had seen the school and how awesome it was. 
And then I saw that they had posted an internship opportunity. So I applied for the internship, um, came down and interviewed, uh, got the job, and they uh, give me a $200 a month stipend, uh, and they house me um, so that I can not have to pay for, you know, rent and I can still survive. So I'm kind of using, you know, the $200 for groceries and things like that, basic expenses, living expenses. Um, and then I'm being housed. So it makes it a lot more financially accessible. And are you allowed to reveal the location of where you are housed? Cause I think it's hilarious. Oh yeah. Um, I'm on the third floor of the school. So it's a three story schoolhouse is how I, how I describe it because it really, it looks like a really a little cute little schoolhouse. It has like, you know, the steeple top and, um, the, uh, coolest thing is going downstairs and all the kids just showing up. Um, I tell them my commute is really hard, you know, <laughs> a lot of traffic on the third uh, floor. Stairway. Yeah. That's well, <laughs> man. I'll get you. Uh, well, that's, that's wonderful. So you had this great opportunity that was very close to home kind of fall into your lap, although you were also putting yourself out there going to see Peter Gray speak there. Uh, when you were searching for other internship opportunities, what did you find? And kind of share your research with people who might be in a similar situation to you and, and so we can help move their path along. Oh, for sure. So um, bringing Macarios back in, the my fifth year teaching, I uh, had a lot more willingness to miss some days of school. And I did it very strategically and I still, you know, I didn't neglect my public school students at all. But I did make some strategic times where I could go visit other alternative schools during the school day to see how the kids, you know, were living and how everything was functioning on like a longer term basis. So I spent a week at Macario's Community School. Um, and during that time, I was also still working on, you know, the next year's conference. But also I spent time at uh, a school called Inspired Learning Academy, uh, which uses some agile learning uh, methods. And uh, they're in Fairview. So they're kind of far, but they're still within the Dallas-Fort Worth general vicinity. Um, so I spent a good amount of time there um, and also um, started hosting self-directed education meetups. Um, and again, still working, networking with the conference. So I, there were a couple of um, different ways that I could have gone for this fall. Uh, Inspired Learning Academy had an internship opportunity. Um, and uh, there was something possibly in Austin. I went to the Alternative Schools Fair in Austin, and I got to connect with a lot of schools down there as well, since I'm from Dallas. So I kind of try to spread my um, my networking reach out to different cities. I forget the question. <laughs> Were you looking online for uh, internship opportunities also? And if so, was that a fruitful search? I was looking online. Um, Houston Sudbury School did have theirs posted online. That is like the first way that I heard about it. Um, and through and what specific were, website? Was it through their own website or through Arrow or elsewhere? That's a great question. Um, I was on their newsletter. So I joined nice. their newsletter from when I went to see Peter Gray. Yeah, I recommend that. I'm on you know Arrow's newsletter. I'm on the ASD newsletter. I'm on a couple of different uh, schools, specifically in Texas, their newsletters I get. So it's really great when they do new things. I get and to be up on it. And just to quickly define some acronyms, Arrow Alternative Education Resource Organization, run by Jerry Mintz, and ASD, Alliance for Self-Directed Education, run by a kind of a junta of, of people who have been in the self-directed world, including Peter Gray, for a long time. Um, yeah. Yeah, so you just signed up for a million email newsletters, and that's a great way to stay abreast of opportunities. Um, yeah. But you wanted to stay in the Texas area. That seems pretty clear. Um, at least for the first uh, little bit, I just wanted to make sure that, I mean, I wasn't, I don't know, I would say that I wasn't necessarily constrained to that. I was looking at internships in the Northeast as well. Um, I just, this is the one that was um, the closest that was also extremely interesting to me because the Sudbury model is super fascinating um, and has a lot of history behind it. Um, so I preferred to be somewhere where I could go visit home um, in Dallas when, when, uh, opportune, but I also, uh, wasn't necessarily, I'm still not constrained to that. Uh, I've actually just applied for, um, an internship for the spring, um, the apprenticeship program with, uh, liberated learners Ooh, with North star. Yeah. So we'll see. I just sent it. <laughs> and that's an opportunity I've shared 
through social media quite a few times because they advertise something similar. You get uh, room, I think room and board, but definitely room provided and a stipend. And it's, a, I think, a nine-month internship. And uh, so they're, they're serious. Yeah, there is also a four-month option. Um, so they have a couple, they're, they're a little bit more flexible on, they said, you know, you could do it for, you know, half or longer. Um, and they're growing. The amount of uh, Liberated Learners Centers are, are growing. So there's a lot of different opportunity there. Um, I met Ken Danford, which was like a huge moment for me because I've watched him and his TED Talks. Just kind of like when I met you, I was like, oh my gosh, I've listened to your podcast so many times. Um, and the same thing happened with Ken. And uh, so I was able to get to know him a little bit better um, and really heard North Star from you first when I asked you, you know, what's the model that you, what's one of the models you really like? Um, North Star is Ken Danford's, I know you know, um, Ken Danford's school. <laughs> yes. uh, and Liberated Learners is the program that oversees all of those different learning cooperatives in the Northeast um, and got super uh, interested in what he does with young people. Mm-hmm. And so you're interested in the Liberated Learners model. You are You've been involved with Marcarios, which is sort of an independent, you know, alternative or progressive school. Uh, right now, you're working at a Sudbury school. Uh, like, which models feel uh, feel the most comfortable to you, or the most appealing? Where Where do you feel drawn in this world? Because it seems like you've done a good amount of dabbling. Where Where does your heart lie now? It's hard because with Sudbury, I love. Um, the amount of um, buy-in to the democratic process. So I do have a very big heart for um, the one student, one vote, one you know staff member, one vote model of decision-making and lawmaking by the students and by the school so that it's complete ownership. Um, everything that is a law here has, or a rule, you know, has been created by the students. And so that's a huge thing for me, because I think that in today's modern American society, uh, the more practical and uh, real uh, ways we can, you know, incorporate democracy for young people in a truly, like they have actual power to change the rules in the school, or they have the actual power to uh, create a new rule or stand up against something they don't believe in and bring a bunch of people and try to rally votes against the thing that they don't agree with, um, is a huge, uh, asset for kids, the, the value that that gives is unexplainable. Um, and I think could really impact the participation in the democratic process in the United States as well. If, you know, kids are able to do that from a young age in a way that's real. Um, so the democratic process of Sudbury is, is a huge point for me. Overall self-directed education. I like, um, that at Macarios, they do offer some classes they have like offerings. Those offerings come from student interests. So students share things they're interested in learning about. And then the staff help create and bring in uh, people from outside of the community to uh, create classes for those interests. Um, But I also think it's really cool in Sudbury to watch interests naturally flourish and watch them make those uh, interactions happen. So like one of the girls is really interested in bracelet making. And so she wanted to take a trip to Michael's, the, you know, the craft store. And so she made that happen um, herself, you know, figured out who wanted to go, uh, how many people would be in the car, how many people would fit. You know what I mean? All of those kinds of things, how long it takes to get yeah, to Michael's. which field Michael's, trip organization. Right. And so uh, there's a lot of ownership there too. So right now I'm kind of in the Sudbury world, uh, living here and being here every day. So it's a little bit hard for me to separate, um, <laughs> to say overall what model I feel maybe, or what um, specific things I feel would completely align. But I really think it, going, going back, I think that any kind of model or systems that you choose when you're opening a, an alternative school or education center really is about what the community needs and what the community wants, what works for that community. So. Mm. I think it's all about taking what I'm learning from all of these different models and then figuring out, okay, within the, whatever community I choose to, you know, have this school in, uh, kind of allowing the community to, to help grow and build whatever is going to work. That's very insightful. And I'm impressed by your flexibility in this matter, because I think a lot of people choose a single cherished system 
that they think is best. And then they just try to make that work in a community kind of without doing much research or seeing what people are actually interested in, in the way that you are describing. And I also want to circle back to something you briefly mentioned earlier about organizing self-directed learning meetups, because I think this is something that not many people who are getting into the world of alternative education think about doing, kind of like you got involved with organizing a one-day conference. Um, Usually we just look for jobs online and we're like, okay, if there's an alternative school job, then I can apply and get it and wonderful. And if not, then I guess there's no opportunities here for me. But you've been going out and with other people, you've been kind of creating your own opportunities. So tell me more about these meetups that you've been doing. Where do they come from? What do they look like? So back to that takes me back to the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. So working with the Alliance, their goal is to create local self-directed education groups that um, meet up in different areas of the United States and of the world um, to talk about self-directed education and learn more about it and learn from each other. And so that was really my inspiration was, okay, uh, how can I gather people? And part of it was self-serving, right? As far as I want to learn more about the model, I want to talk to parents that are interested in the model or are doing something with self-directed education in their child, whether it's unschooling or they're in a Sudbury school or whatever the case may be. The more people like that that I can connect with, um, the more that we can all learn and grow and then grow the self-directed education movement, which is a huge passion that I have. And I, uh, I think that the meetups are definitely moving towards that goal. So they're once a month in uh, somewhere in Dallas, Fort Worth, we try to pick different places throughout the Metroplex. Um, and sometimes that we've had one at a co-working space. We're looking at having one at a library. We have hosted one at uh, Macario's community school. Some, uh, I hosted one in Houston at the Sudbury school. So just different locations, uh, for different reasons. And then, uh, the people that come are from all different backgrounds. Sometimes it's uh, mom and she brings her 14-year-old son who's unschooling. And so it's great because then some of the parents that have maybe just started unschooling or just started with a self-directed learning path can hear from this 14-year-old um, amazingly articulate kid about you know wh- why it was working for him. Um, the same can be said with me meeting other teachers that are feeling the way that I'm feeling. There's uh, one or two other teachers that I've met through these meetups that is kind of, in a sense, doing similarly to me, which is they wanted to leave the public education system and uh, do something different. And so it's been hugely inspiring and helpful to connect with those people too. And can you give me a specific example of maybe a recent meetup that you hosted? Like, what was this, the discussion topic? What was it that these people came here for? I think community is a really big reason. It's hard when everybody around you and everybody in this in society uh, is like, why isn't your kid in traditional school? Like, what are you doing? That's dangerous. Outside the box, not normal. Don't know how it's going to turn out. So I think that it's really helpful to have community of like-minded people to kind of echo and remind each other of different elements of why this, why self-directed education in whatever model or whatever form you do it is really natural for kids and great for them to learn. Um, so I would say community is one of the main things that a lot of people are seeking. I think also uh, a deeper understanding of what self-directed education looks like in practice. So a lot of times anecdotal evidence is the best that uh, we can give because it's not really a measurable type of learning necessarily um, in a traditional way. So hearing from other people and the stories that they've experienced and the things that they've learned and heard uh, can be really affirming to people when they're looking to when they're trying to actively self-direct. Um, their own lives or allow their kids to do the same. Mm. And just logistically speaking, if somebody else wanted to do something similar, uh, I mean, is this complicated? Do you have to pay money out of your own pocket to rent these spaces? How do you advertise? Just give me a, a brief how to do this. Yeah. So uh, Bria Bloom from ASDE uh, and I and a couple other people that are having local SDE group meetups kind of created a little bit of a, you know, um, like a form that kind of gives some suggestions. So one of the things that we suggest when you're creating a local SDE group is to find um, spaces that you can um, hold these meetups for free. So sometimes those would be like local coffee shops. Uh, Libraries are always a really great option. Um, Some of the schools uh, that are practicing that model so that people can also walk around the school and see it in uh, 
you know, in its form. And uh, then with promotion, it really, a lot of it's Facebook events. Um, ASD also has a space on their website under their resource directory where the local SDE groups that exist are listed. Um, so that's been a great way for us to share kind of our upcoming events um, is through the forums and through ASD. And also Eventbrite has been great. So I've been using Facebook with Eventbrite. The tickets for, I mean, they say tickets, so it makes it feel like you're paying for it. But yeah. um, really it's, you know, these are free meetups. I'm not, you know, spending any or making any money off of them. The only thing that I think that I might sometimes spend a tiny bit of money on is making copies of the agenda, which is one page. Like, And it's really, you don't even have to have an agenda. I just wanted people to kind of know the flow of what we were going to talk about. Um, and also it has like my contact information. It has information about the conference, the annual conference, um, because I would love to see all the people that attend these meetups to come to the Self-Directed Path Conference, uh, which is coming up in April, 2019. So that's one of the things that I remind and, and share with them is that there is this big conference once a year. Um, so making copies would be something else. But besides that, it's really not, it's scary because you feel like, oh, I have to be this huge authority on self-directed education, but you really don't have to be. Uh, it really is holding space, um, as Akila Richards puts it, for for those conversations to, to mm -hmm. naturally occur. Mm -hmm. And you're making me think of something else that we have previously discussed, which is coming from the public school where you had a very specific subject to teach English and entering into this world of Sudbury schools and consensual education. Uh, you've told me that sometimes it feels a little bit awkward to be there because you you feel like you don't have anything to offer. Can Can you elaborate on that? Yeah. So as I told you, from like three years old, I wanted to be a teacher. And the understanding of a, t you know, in traditional or conventional model of a teacher is, you know, creating awesome curriculum and lessons and that are engaging and that have are multifaceted and um, sharing those with a classroom of students. That's obviously not the role of a Sudbury staff member um, or oftentimes any member uh, that's an adult in self-directed education, whether you're a parent or something else. Um, so kind of having to take a step back and really learn to follow the interests of the students instead of having this preset curriculum that the state gives you that here's what you have to teach. Now find a creative way to do it. Um, it's more of that on the spot. Like a kid will come up to you, you know, in Sudbury education and say, can you teach me how to do this? Um, and it might be something that I've never done before. So it's very different than like pre-planning a curriculum and being like, here is this awesome thing that I have created for you guys to experience. It's, almost more of teaching really turns into a very on the spot thing. And it turns into a very, it could be about anything. So um, the other day I was learning finger knitting. I never done that before. I never thought I was going to, but are you uh, certified in finger knitting? Were you teaching finger knitting without a, a credential? No. Yeah. I was teaching it without a credential. I didn't have, you know, so it's oh, funny because it, it shifts, it shifts your mindset of like, Oh, so I can learn things. Like, again, I can self-direct my own learning, and it's not scary to do that with kids. Uh, once, you're, once you admit, you know, if you're able to say, like, I really don't know a lot about this, but I'm definitely down to try it with you um, and learn together, that's really amazing, but also really is a mind shift because it's not what you see in, in, or what you do when you're a traditional teacher normally. Mm -hmm. um, and I also feel, uh, one more thing I wanted to say is I also feel like sometimes um, – in these self-directed learning environments, it's really helpful to have some concrete skills that you can share with young people. Um, like I've been asked by people like Ken Danford, like, okay, well, if you're going to teach a class, you know, uh, at North Star, what are your hard skills? What are your skills that you could bring? Like, what could you teach coding? Could you teach uh, woodworking? Could you teach welding? Like, what could you teach? And uh, I kind of was at a loss because although I have some passions outside of education and some interests, I haven't really taken the uh, had the time, I think, honestly, to uh, dive deeper into those interests mm. and have a level of understanding that I felt I could share with other mm. people, especially kids. And so I was feeling, oh, my gosh, I've been preparing to be a teacher my whole life and I don't have any other skills to offer. Um, but I've also learned that that's really like going back to what I said before. That's why it's awesome to be able to say, you know what, I don't know how to do that, but I'm 100 percent willing to to do it, to try it with you. Um, or to do what I can to support you doing it, or to bring someone else in who knows how to do it. Um, 
So, or just go down the YouTube algorithm hole together. Exactly, exactly. Self-direct uh, your educations together. Um, mm-hmm. And so that's given me a lot more like peace and understanding. Whereas at first I was like, oh my gosh, I'm without all of these necessary skills that kids want to, you know, so. But I've been learning a lot. I've been learning a lot more as an adult because of the lack of, you know. Because uh, you've been forced to diversify and not just be so narrowly focused on one subject, which is English. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. So you came from five years of public school teaching where I'm sure you got a raise most years and you got benefits. And uh, (laughs) on a recent episode, I interviewed um, Joel Hammond about quitting teaching in the Princeton, New Jersey area where he was on track to making a six-figure salary as a public school teacher with benefits. And he walked away from that to start Princeton Learning Cooperative. And so... How do you negotiate the feeling of financial security at this point in your life where I'm sure the other teachers you were working with were steadily moving up the pay scale, moving towards tenure, if they still have tenure where you are? And uh, and then for you to walk away from that, how do you replace that feeling of security and, and career progress? That's a great question too. I um, One of the public school teachers said to me when I told her I was doing this that, well, what happens when that doesn't work out? You're going to come back, right? And uh, so there there was definitely, and it was inside me too. It wasn't just external, this fear of what happens if, you know, I can't sustain myself financially. Um, I have worked through that by pre-planning. So I would say going back to saving money that whole fifth year, like my goal being to prepare myself to uh, really not make too much money um, this year when I'm doing different internships. I think also uh, some of it is just, it's worth it. Right now, like I've, I couldn't tell you before I left, I wasn't sure for sure that it would be like, that I would feel this way, but it's 100% been worth it to explore uh, Sudbury and different educational models. I feel so much more fulfilled and so, and I feel like I'm thriving. Um, I didn't feel that way by my fourth and fifth year as a public school teacher. Um, and I feel like I'm living out my purpose more. And uh, that's worth all the money that there is. Mm, a, a different kind of benefits. Yes. Also, I would say I do have really supportive parents um, that completely believe in what I'm doing. And so I do have that a little bit to fall back on if I need to. I haven't needed to. Um, but they are there, you know, in case if it's like, oh my gosh, I have a flat tire. I don't have money to pay for, you know what I mean? If it's something like that, sure, I do have, you know, them to loan me money for something like that. And so that's, I'm really fortunate there too. So that is something. And as you've been moving down this new career path, what is some of the more valuable advice that you've received? no matter who it comes from, what has helped the most? And what's something that maybe you wish you heard a little bit earlier? One of the main things that, uh, that has been instilled in me through this process is be okay with not knowing. That's a really hard, sometimes a hard place to be is to not know how to do something or to not know exactly what the next step is in your career path and not have it all prepaved um, for yourself uh, or by others. Um, it's okay to not necessarily know what the next semester is going to look like or not necessarily know how to do something that a kid wants to learn in a self-directed environment and kind of letting go uh, of that and also being a sponge, really being okay with, oh my gosh, I'm going to absorb as much as I'm learning as I can um, from other people. And so kind of that humbleness of realizing that there's a lot still to learn um, in this alternative world of education and then also kind of having that space for yourself to maybe not always know exactly what the next step is in the self-directed process that you're in. Mm, Embracing uncertainty. Oh, it's so hard. It's so hard. It gets easier when, when it's working out, you know, when it starts to work out and you're like, Oh my gosh, okay, it all came together. But, and definitely uh, kind of back to what we talked about before, putting yourself out there continuously, really checking up with networking uh, that you've done, reaching back out to people that you've talked to, um, put, going out to meetups, going out to new events that, you know, the, there's this thing called the birth fair this weekend, um, that I'm going to be at, um, supporting self-directed education, trying to be out in the community talking about it, um, in a helpful way, obviously not in a way that's like, 
oh my gosh, this is the only way to teach kids. But yeah, just not preaching. Sharing it. Yeah, sharing it with other people um, and sharing your passion. It just connects you to so many opportunities. Cassidy, did you got into public education because you had this calling, this mission. You knew you wanted to do this from a very young age. And after being there for five years and now leaving and you're exploring the world of alternative education and you want to start your own school, uh, do you feel like that is going to satisfy the same innate you know, desires that made you want to be a public school teacher? And what were those desires? So one of the biggest reasons that I wanted to be a public school teacher was to be the person that's there for the for a kid during a really hard time. I had some really hard times in public school, especially in middle school. So I, I was definitely called to uh, to really support them and those kids in a real way and as whole people. And I definitely feel like that's gonna be fulfilled with this new path that I'm taking. Self-directed education allows me, this, me and kids the space and time to connect on a level that is really what I what I strived for with public school kids, but could never quite always get maybe with a few, you know, if they spent time with me after school or we had, you know, time to do that. But overall that we couldn't really get deep relationships and connections. And I want to be a person for young people um, that they can have a connection with that maybe isn't their parent. Um, and that values them as a whole person and allows them to, and accepts them for who they are. So I think that that will be fulfilled through this journey, um, whether it's right now teaching at the Sudbury school or, uh, in the future when I'm able to hold a space as, you know, maybe somebody who starts a school for kids, uh, to provide those, those things. I have no doubt. Uh, <laughs> okay. Before we wrap up, please let people know about your conference that's happening and what it's called, you know, what year is this now and, and what's it going to be about and how can people learn more? So this is going to be our third self-directed path conference. It is going to be in Dallas-Fort Worth. We're working on a location right now within Dallas. It is on April 27th. Um, and so that's a Saturday. And it will be probably um, a morning to afternoon, uh, half speakers, um, half unconference style. Uh, so very much like people pooling and sharing their in the information that they have. Um, with others during the second half. So it's going to be very interactive um, as well. And so we're really excited. We're um, ready for our third year to do this. And we're looking at possible speakers as well. So um, we would love to see anybody there who's interested on April 27th. And what's the website? The website is self-directed, self-directed path dot org. <laughs> you sounded so, a little bit unsure when you said path. Yeah, like, so let path, me see. Yeah, it? so... Yeah, it is path. So self-directedpath.org. Great. Cassidy, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Blake.